Uh, and welcome to our first evening keynote at World Architecture Festival 2015. Uh, we began the day uh, with a fascinating presentation by Liu Tai Ker, who was around at the kind of dawn of the policies of an independent Singapore uh, in respect of its physical environment, uh, both housing uh, and infrastructure. And he uh, gave us a kind of fascinating run through the thinking that had informed the ideas that created the Singapore we see today. The, the unexpected things, for example, the far more rapid growth in population than had been in anticipated, and drew some conclusions about the lessons that have been learned uh, in three phases of Singapore expansion, which might put it uh, in a good place as it thinks about um, its next 50 years, if not to the end of the century. Uh, well, we're um, closing today, uh, or we're closing it in terms of presentations, um, with a talk by Charles Jenks, um, who's been uh, a controversialist, a critic, uh, landscape architect, and a great positive force for discussion, for big conversation uh, about all things architectural. Uh, for many decades, um, the person who wrote the most successful uh, book on architecture, The Language of Postmodernism, um, produced in Samizdat editions behind the Iron Curtain. So it's hard to say just exactly how many books that sold. Uh, he's been a prolific author um, on many subjects, all fundamentally related to design. Uh, and uh, not least of his achievements has been significant work as a landscape architect uh, in Scotland and other places in recent times. And what he's going to talk about this evening, um, agreed in advance, but I think extra prompted by Liu Tai Ker's presentation this morning, um, is what lessons there may be uh, for world architecture rather than the future of Singapore uh, in the story of what has happened here over the last 50 years. Please welcome Charles Jenks. Thank you, Paul. Uh, let me say before I start that um, I'm really happy to be uh, at this conference. I, I've attended seven out of the eight. And for me, the World Architectural Festival or Forum is the meeting place of global architects, the young. And it's more interesting to me than the Venice Biennale and now it's copycat, the Chicago Biennale, which is opening on alternate years. So here you are, I think, at the center of discussion and debate, which really takes place, as well as these plenary sessions, it takes place in those little igloos outside. So I'm really happy, Paul, for that you've invited me to speak, and my talk is on generic individualism, the reigning style and approach of our time, and Singapore, which uh, epitomizes generic individualism. And I will talk a little bit about the next step, the next step beyond ge generic individualism. Let me start by um, reading uh, Luke um, Ty Kerr's um, statement about nationhood and Singapore. He said, in 1960, around the time of our independence, 
Singapore had 1.9 million people, and roughly 1.3 million lived in squatter huts. That is, 70% of the population lived in squatter huts or slums. Squatter huts, which you can see in these slides, were single-story sheds constructed with cardboard, zinc sheets, sticks, and poles, with no modern sanitation treatments, and with limited electricity supply and water supply. There was only a weak sense of nationhood. If you asked the Chinese where their home country was, they said China. If you asked the Malays, they said Malaysia. And if you asked the Indians, they said India. So how can you build a nation under these circumstances? You see Chinatown, Chinatown cleaned up, as, was, uh, as Dr. Liu said this morning, painted every five years on command, everything uh, cleaned, and identity affirmed. Um, uh, and you see a Malaysian part, and you see an Indian part. So, you can see the parts. In fact, Li Kao Yu said uh, a nation in Singapore is an impossibility. So at the origin of the nation, they understood how difficult it would be to create these three ethnic groups and bring them together. He asked, they all asked, how can it be done? Um, they didn't mention the colonialists who were involved in this, the fourth ethnic group. But of course, uh, we heard about that this morning too. They, they kept the red roofs, they polished uh, the fronts, they repainted them every five years, and so even the British felt at home in the ethnic mix. Um, we also heard from Peter Cook afterward that, you know, cleanliness can go too far and he made a case for creative grunge and dirt and the time city, in effect. And I just show you one example of the next step in the work of Herzog and de Meuron in Madrid, where a 19th century brick building and a topology of Madrid has been transformed. So the past hasn't just been preserved, but it's been uh, changed slightly and uh, reconfigured. A kind of attitude to the past which you don't find particularly in Singapore. In any case, for the positive answers uh, about nationhood, the most important thing, of course, has been the economy and modernization. The universal pretenses of modernization, modernity, and modernism were that they went to everybody. And the growth rate you see in these diagrams, if you can read them, is that in the last 50 years, Singapore has had the highest growth of GDP of um, the major countries, more than Hong Kong, more than Japan, more than Malaysia, more than China, more than the United States, which is second in this graph. So it's amazing that the average income, 50,000 per person, this is from The Economist of about three months ago, um, is the highest per capita income uh, of those nations, if not the world. Of course, it's skewed at the top by the few incredibly rich people here, the 1% who are so rich that they pull it up to 50,000 as an um, average uh, GNP per person. 
in any case, it's obviously growth which has happened, which has helped uh, nationhood. And when Lee Kuan Yew died, of course, the nation came together in March. And the national consciousness was, in fact, formed that way, partly, through a love of the father figure and the man who made it happen and who allowed it to happen. On the other hand, if we look at the larger picture, there is not only modernism, modernization and modernity, the three M's, sounds like the three M company, but there's post-modernization, post-industrialization, the computer and the networked world, and that leads to the next stage uh, we've already had, particularly in Singapore, which is not mass production and modernism, but mass customization. And I show Danny Liebskin's uh, housing uh, in Kepi Bay in Singapore to show uh, the architectural equivalent of mass customization that you know in all the industries today. That is of small uh, networked groups. It's called post-Fordism. So think about two stages, a growth 50 years of modernism and postmodernism. Only South Korea and a few other countries have gone through both revolutions so quickly. And in particular, um, I think we have to say that it's worked so well in Singapore because of the social contract which came with those uh, two revolutions. I took an architect up to the top of the Marina Bay Sands Hotel and I asked him to look at the five good, uh, good things that have happened in uh, Singapore in the last 50 years. And this is Howard Raggett looking over the, the whole city. A best view, really, of the whole city is from the top of Marina Bay Sands. You can see that they've had, of course, as was mentioned many times, the 70% uh, squatters or slum uh, people were uh, given um, uh, mass uh, housing and uh, public housing so that they became, the 70% became like the top 30% in many respects. So mass public housing was perhaps the greatest public uh, part of the social contract, but just as important were mass transport, good transport, even bicycle transport. Importantly was very good health, good education, and a good green ecology. That is when it's not, um, the pollution is not coming in from another country. So if we call these the five public goods that led to the social contract, you can see why the political party has been in power for 50 years and its ratings are still very high, even if they're going down slightly. We heard this morning that um, one of the implications of this fast growth and change is the anxiety suffered by the workforce here and by Singaporeans in general. And it was said uh, by the doctor I care that, and I'm quoting him, our people suffer from perfectionitis, too much perfectioning, perfection every day, perfectionitis. And it's partly because of what you could think is leapfrog economics, shown by this diagram I did for Dubai. When Dubai, this is in 2007, just before the crash, 
And the phrase leapfrog economics is a particular phrase from Hong Kong economists, which says you get into an economy, you come out of an economy before it goes down. And that's why you get the growth rates of 2 to 9% per year in Dubai, unbroken, and you, get, you got in Singapore. But the result of that is that people feel exhausted here and they feel anxious about the future, perfectionitis. I want to make uh, a couple more economic points. In, that, in this diagram, you see uh, five stages of growth. You probably can only read it in the front rows, but it shows monopoly capitalism uh, in the center, and it shows um, the growth from mercantile capitalism in the 1600s to industrialized capitalism in the 17th, uh, 18th century, the 19th century when monopoly capitalism uh, started in a big way. The 20th century during the Depression led to welfare capitalism. And you see the fifth stage as the economy, the world economy, and the major economies. This diagram applies to both of them. You see today it's much larger, and it's broken into these groups. All the, the parts of the economy uh, which are called capitalists are actually different kinds of capitalism, very different kinds of capitalism. In fact, the word capitalism has to be hyphenated. So I did, in this diagram of 1995, I called it socialized capitalism or socialism. Socialism. And that's what we live in under, and particularly in Singapore, it's socialized capitalism, more than any other country in the world. That's what the social contract is about. It's different from uh, welfare state capitalism. And it leads um, me to the next point, and that is that um, socialism brings out what I would call a rule. That is, you can socialize capitalism, but you can't capitalize socialism. That's what we found out in the last 50 years. It doesn't work. You can't capitalize socialism. So, socialism, a phrase that no other um, economist or person, as far as I know, has ever used besides myself, I call Jenks's law. And I think it is more or less a law, but in any case, I think that it typifies um, the virtues of the social contract and the virtues of um, these 50 years. However, we have to open a conversation, create a space of freedom to debate the next step. And when you look at the pinnacle housing, finished quite recently, this is taken from the URA, uh, the Urban Redevelopment Authority uh, window, you can see um, high-rise, uh, more articulated, more generic, but individualized with all sorts of uh, not quite personal uh, uh, mixtures. And you can see why Li Kua Yun said at the beginning, in the 1960s, um, we today cannot afford the luxury of poetry. So he was saying, because we have to 
really transform ourselves economically and socially, we can't afford the luxury of poetry. So in this generic individualism, you can see a kind of deficit. There's the view from the URA of the URA model. And you see that every building um, is planned. Uh, there's a kind of incredible control over planning that uh, the rest of the world uh, envies, particularly the mayors of the major cities envy, uh, and indeed the architects and, and indeed the planners uh, around the world. And you can see every day, in every way, this plan is being extended uh, little districts, little new towns, these hierarchies that we heard about this morning, on every level, it's total control. And uh, we're now seeing pointed at the place we're sitting um, in the Marina Bay Sands area, and the Marina Bay um, uh, Gardens, uh, which is on reclaimed land. In any case, this story is very well known. It's talked about, and it personifies a kind of architectural um, utopian situation if you think of architecture as control and design. So that the generic individualism I've talked about goes the next step of, of individuation in the sense that a computer can bring and big business um, big capital can allow, you can see in the central business district uh, how each one of these uh, buildings is slightly different from the next and individuated. It also brings up the image of the architect uh, in coming from Plato. When Plato said the architect, is the, uh, the great architect of all things is God. God is the great architect of all things. He's a designer architect and in this 13th century moralized Bible, you can see as a man, he's holding the instruments of architecture. He's laying out the universe, earth, air, water, and fire. And uh, to show he's omnipotent and controls everything, um, he steps out of the picture. Um, so this is one of the few, very few images of an architect as a man and curiously, um, if you look at the iconography of the architect, over many centuries, the architect is a woman. Makes you think. Uh, the, the session preceding this one was on women in architecture, and they were debating, uh, w women were debating their role today and what was their role in the future, what was their role going to be in the future. And you can see in this woman, this is a typical representation or allegory of a woman, a strong woman, an older woman, a matron with her sleeves rolled up, looking askance, looking sideways, thinking with the instruments of architecture in one hand, the drawing and the measuring rod uh, and the instrument and a sextant on, the, on her right foot, she's balancing. Strong enough uh, to go out on the building side and to resist uh, catcalls or whistles. She's always shown in these 13th, 14th, 15th, 16th, 17th, and 18th century renditions in a similar way. Here, she's uh, got her measuring uh, stick in one hand, her uh, plumb line at her foot under A, and the instruments uh, showing her uh, her toughness, how she has to work hard. 
It's interesting to think of this in, as a way of thinking about women in architecture and the architecture profession outside of the present in a historical kind of way. This is the 18th century version of Architectura. All of these women are called Architectura. Here she is um, showing a plan, and she has at her feet two little cherubs, or puti. Uh, when I was studying architecture, they used to call people who did all the drawings the pencils. Well, here are the pencils at her feet. You know, a big office has lots of uh, people drawing. These were happy drafts cherubs. If you look in the distance, you can just make out behind her left shoulder, there's Minerva, who is an attribute of the architect, of architecture. And she is a goddess of war, remember Athena, with a helmet. And she has attributes of fighting. And then just to her left, or to your right, sitting down is Semiramis, another architect. And behind her is the city she designed, Babylon, and with it, the famous Tower of Babel being constructed. So here we have again this question, really interesting kind of historical question, speculation. What, why, since women were not uh, allowed to be architects, really, historically, why are they represented as a woman? I think there's several answers to this, but I would argue partly it's because the the woman, the allegory of the female, is more acceptable to society in this period as a um, symbol of what the tender loving care and the humane environment might be. Whereas if you put a man in that role, it wouldn't communicate the right kind of values. So in a sense, a woman was standing for our better selves the nicer part of our character. Whereas if you look at the first famous woman architect, it's uh, Hatshepsut in 1450 BC in Egypt, and she had to dress up as the pharaoh. She was the pharaoh too. She had to dress up as a man uh, to be an architect. Actually, and her lover, Senmet, was the architect, but she worked very much and created an incredible iconic buildings in her period. And today, of course, uh, there's Zaha Hadid, uh, who is uh, probably the most famous woman architect who's ever lived. And Zaha has worked very hard and fought her way very hard to be that. You see her standing there, looking askance, uh, slightly ill at ease, but as an icon herself. And you see the, uh, the Minerva figure of architectura in the allegory. Well, about a month and a half ago, she won the gold medal in Britain and um, finally being recognized by the profession. Uh, and after she was recognized, there was a flurry of excitement, favorable more or less, but there was a terrific uh, ding dong with the BBC. And on the BBC, she was accused of designing uh, places, as Baku in the background you see, uh, designing places for the KGB. The head of the Baku was a member of the KGB. And for uh, unsavory governments in the Middle East. And, um, she, and also in the Middle East, designing a building in which 
many people were killed on the building side. That is, the migrant workers were killed. Um, she was attacked like this by the BBC on air, and she said, this is untrue. Uh, it's completely untrue. No one's died on the building site. And the, and the BBC uh, uh, interviewer, who was a woman, went after her again and said, of course, what do you think about all the people dying on your building? She said, that's not true. No one's died on my building. I haven't even started the building. How can anyone die? And she said, well, what about all the other people dying on the sites around your building? You know? And she said, look, um, this is completely false. Why, don't, why doesn't the BBC do their homework a little bit better? And um, so there was a real battle. And finally, uh, she said, well, you know, uh, because someone accused me of, of being, having a building where people died, I sued them, and I won. It was the New York Review of Books, and I sued that person, and they apologized. And if you don't stop this, I'm walking off. Well, the woman didn't stop, and so she walked out of the BBC interview. Interestingly, though, the Times, um, another woman attacked her. So you see, the press is very volatile, the BBC, the Times, uh, editorial this is, Hadid deals with despots come at a price. If you read that article that appeared uh, the next week, you see the role of the architect, the role of Zaha, and not only the alienation of people who might be uh, overworked perfectionists, but the alienation of the architect. And this picture of Frank Gehry, which went viral, and which, um, when he got off a plane and uh, Spain was asked, why do you build um, spectacular buildings all the time? He didn't answer, except he just gave the finger. And this was put on every architect's hand. Uh, you can Google it. So the point is that the alienation goes around. And, and Frank said, you know, quite understandably, um, most of the environment is awful, uh, and I do my best to build better buildings, and here's the kind of question you ask me. So he apologized the next day, but you see the contested role of the architect today, the star architect. They're in a double bind. They're damned if they do, they're damned if they don't. The architectural image, military architecture, you see a little bit more um, strong, and then Another architecture, I couldn't believe this when I came across, is Giambologna in Florence, and it's nude architecture, architecture as an incredibly voluptuous woman. This is 16th century, so still the architect represented. Filarete was a theorist in the Renaissance, Antonio Filarete in Milan, designed hospitals there and an ideal city. And he mentioned an ideal relationship between the client and the architect, which really influenced me. And I drew a picture of architectura, Madame Architecture. And the client, it's an allegory of the present and based on Filaretta. And Filaretta said, you know, an ideal relationship with the client and the architect is the client, the man, pursues the architect, the woman. And if it's a love match, after nine months, a building is born. And it takes that tender, loving care between the client and the architect. It has to have both, and it has to have love. And if there's no love, if it's done just for money, it's stillborn.
Anyway, we have to admit that the architectural profession isn't as nice as Filarete hoped. And here's one other uh, image of the architect, 1450 in uh, uh, St. Stephen's Church in Vienna. And he, now it's a male for the first time, is crushed under his own building, crushed under the big building. And that brings me to the next point. Bigness, anon anonymity, money, and how they all go together. This is a cartoon of Kowarski, 1966, the cover of The New Yorker. You can see how the dumb box was understood completely at that time in America. When I wrote on postmodernism in the 70s, I analyzed the multiple causes, and I did, like the professor this morning, I did a systematic study. But it's the number six, the size of projects, which used to be small or some large, which is now, and I put in quotes, if you read number six, it says, too big. How big is too big? Well, postmodernism and late modernism are both reactions to bigness. They go in different ways. I won't go into the uh, postmodern ways because Singapore is mostly the late modern answer and you can see in Philip Johnson's Pennzoil building in Houston a very mannerist building where he takes the dumb box, breaks it in two, rotates it, uh, pr projects it 300 feet, 10 feet apart, creating this mannerist um, uh, gener uh, generic individualism. And bigness goes on getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger ever since. This is Madrid after the crash, these 70-story buildings built by the best architects, and all of them empty. So Madrid didn't get the, um, social, the social contract right, whereas Singapore did. Anyway, Rem Koolhaas, who has written on bigness in 1994 and talked about it endlessly, says, beyond a certain scale, architecture acquires the properties of bigness. The best reason to broach bigness is the one given by climbers of Mount Everest, because it is there. Bigness is ultimate architecture. And he unpacks that and is point five. Together, all these breaks with scale, with architectural composition, with tradition, with transparency, with ethics, imply the final most radical break. Bigness is no longer part of any urban tissue. It exists. At most, it coexists. Its subtext is fuck context. And he designed the Rotterdam recently, finished, um, to prove the point uh, on an island next to a piano building on the left there. His bigness uh, has really, in a sense, swallowed himself. Uh, it's a bigness run amok. It's bigness as a problem of monothematitis, an architectural disease. One of the architectural two diseases of bigness. One is monothematitis, the other is blasphemesis, blaspheme. And so I did the law of diminishing architecture and 2000, year 2000 for the Architectural Review, and worked out what this bigness meant. And you see blasphemesis in blue in the upper right and, and monothematitis in the lower left. A consequence of most buildings over a half a million square feet. If you think of a million square feet as the size of the um, Empire State Building 1933, 
than half the size of that. In general, the average building tends to be worse over a half a million square feet. Although prestige buildings, buildings on which extra money is spent, that is iconic buildings, uh, the law of diminishing architecture isn't true. But in general, I would argue it's a social truth. Now, how does Singapore deal with that? Well, Singapore is the great exception, as the, president, uh, the present uh, prime minister has said. It's the great exception. One of the ways it's a great exception is if this is the green coverage in 1986, then amazingly, with a bigger population in 2077, there's more greenness in Singapore. So that's one of the ways they have uh, overcome bigness and one of the few cities in the world. Another uh, example of this, how the world could be contained in a thousand Singapores. Those are the statistics in graphic form of this um, concentration. You know they've celebrated with the Henderson Waves the jungles, and they preserved a lot of the jungles. So there is a, uh, I'm sure those of you this morning will have heard how water is, uh, um, is kept and saved and recirculated. So they now can export water, amazingly, for such a small uh, country. And they've got linear parks, so they've taken together uh, existing green areas and created what's called an ecology, patch ecology. So even animals can run along these linear parks and patches. So this is saving flora as well as fauna. The 2001 plan, which is one of the last big plans, and you saw many of them this morning, shows how land reclamation has been a key part of uh, Singapore's uh, coping with bigness, expansion by creating new land. And I wasn't aware how incredibly important this is in the Faustian bargain between um, big business and big government. There is a bargain here. And what happens is that in this bargain, by creating more land, the land can be sold off to developers and then incentives put into the developers so that they do all the right things, those five goodnesses for the social contract including the green. So here's a very interesting uh, city model, which has, has never been uh, done as successfully as it has in Singapore. In other words, create more land, have the government control it, and then control the developers so that they do the right thing for the social contract. I want to swi switch quickly to the green in architecture and mention Ken Yang. Uh, from Malaysia, who in 1990 started writing on and building bioclimatic skyscrapers because his major uh, methods of coping with a, um, a, a place on the equator have been become the, uh, the stereotypes, the generic solutions for all building in Singapore and on the equator. This is the IBM uh, building in Kuala Lumpur. And you see the four kind of solutions, the really five, varying from, of course, paracels, breeze soleils, uh, sky courts, earth berms, 
a connection to the rest of the city and the patch ecologies at the base, the way it relates to orientation and the stack effect. All of those five solutions, generic solutions, are now the kind of Doric columns of contemporary architecture. And so one of the buildings in Singapore, which is a parasol building, a wonderful uh, building for school and mixed use, uh, I photographed here with a woman carrying a parasol. So the building and, and the inhabitants, in a, case, in a case, mimicking each other. Um, so this is theorized, the green, uh, the green jungle coming to the city, coming to the building, in fact, and countless examples are now mandated uh, by, uh, with developers, and the developers have to create things like the Park Royal Hotel, designed by the local firm Woha, and School of, uh, of the Arts, also designed by Woha, are green buildings with all those five generic uh, elements in them. I suppose the biggest example of that uh, kind of thinking and generic individualism is the um, interlace building by Ole Sharon and Rem Koolhaas's firm, OMA, which takes those um, mass housing you see in the background, breaks them up into bridge buildings, orients them on a trihex, cantilevers them. A trihex is a triangular and hexagonal geometry and introduces a whole lot of um, social uh, elements into the, 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 the parts. This is a highly successful uh, um, public housing, uh, which the architect calls low-tier housing, although the developer Capital Land, who's bought into it, 60% of it has been sold to Capital Land itself, so 60% is owned or is inhabited by the developer, by the people who work for the developers, and a few very, very rich overseas people. It is, although it's in a way, it's like a utopian social condenser of socialism, uh, if you add up all of its 20 or 30 different social elements, it's actually a gated community which is uh, highly capitalized in certain respects. So it's socketalism, rich large, and I think it has a kind of um, urbanity uh, and dealing with bigness that New York has. It has, you don't, somehow by breaking down the volumes, by rotating them, by putting in all of these parts, and by making it fairly anonymous, you don't feel you're being watched all the time. It, it, I think it's a successful example of bigness. But I have to say, even following the same generic five points, um, this building um, called the Star, uh, which was built very fast and very cheaply and designed by uh, uh, Andrew Bromberg of ADIS, um, shows one of the problems of big building uh, in a fast way. It's, um, it's called the star, and the section he drew is much more like the crystal architecture of the 1910s and 20s. It's much more uh, controlled in compositional ways. But when you look at the building itself, you can see that the composition has become, in a sense, too big. And bigness has a tendency to break down scale and to overcome composition and overcome our relationship to the building.
So not all of bigness can be coped with. And not all, all of the things that follow quickly from it, that is the iconic building, can be well designed. This is a book I wrote on the iconic building in 2005, and it shows, of course, the famous gherkin uh, of Norman Foster, and um, Ken Shuttleworth is here, one of the designers, worked very hard on this building. It shows this building uh, as a kind of NASA rocket about to be launched from Cape Kennedy, uh, about to explode. It doesn't look at all like a gherkin, doesn't look like a pickle, it doesn't look like something you'd eat. Um, but it was, it was, in many ways, a great iconic building, it still is, and I'm not going to discuss all its functional uh, virtues and its green virtues. I'm just looking at the iconic building and remind you of a point which is maybe not well known, and that is an iconic building is always today hated because of iconoclasm, because we live in a pluralist global culture, and anyone who builds an icon after religion, that is, after the religious consensus has broken down, is going to face iconoclasm. So Eiffel, who built a 300-meter uh, tower in 1889, called it the most beautiful building in the world, and it was considered by the Parisians the ugliest, and there was a committee of 300 who fought it every meter of the way, committee of artists, cultured people, the, uh, the power, the politicians, the, the business community. Indeed, every Parisian hated it. It was the most sincerely hated building for 10 years. Uh, it didn't have any function. The only function was to look out for the Germans who might invade. You could go up it, but it didn't, it was, it, it didn't even have a restaurant then. Anyway, the point I'm making is you can ask of the iconic building, is it hated enough? to become an icon, which is a strange thing to ask or think about if you're trying to create an icon. Next to it, of course, is Eiffel Tower's uh, the Statue of Liberty. So the iconic building, this is a failed um, cover that the publisher didn't want to put on the cover. It shows the malicious uh, missile or rocket taking off. And I called it the power of paranoia because the icon carries a paranoid charge and the top metaphors, it's a multi-metaphorical building, it's not a one-liner and that's what makes it a good icon, is, I mean among other things, is the way it relates to both natural and mechanical images. And I think if you look at the iconic building you'll find and you analyze it, there are lots of different references to nature, to animals, to flora, to fauna, and to the human body. This is the code of some recent iconic buildings, including Rochon. So that iconic code has been worked out in an age of lapsed faith. And if you look at the most iconic building in the city by far, and you look at the BBC World Service any day, you'll see what's on it, this amazing um, figural building, which no one uh, can avoid seeing. It's the gateway to Asia. It is a gate, in a sense. It's a Tory gate, if you know Japanese architecture. It relates to many Asian things. And for Moshe Safdie, it's opened his firm to all the Asian projects. He said it's given me many other iconic buildings in Asia. So it's an icon which carries a paranoid charge. And um, 
which, which upsets many people. Uh, it certainly looms over all parts of the city. It has strange enigmatic shapes. Here you see it with Jeff Kuhn's horrible plant that didn't grow. I ha say happily, they've moved it away, so it's no longer in this place where I photographed it the last time I was in Singapore. Uh, anyway, it's a strange uh, enigmatic shape, and one of the things about the iconic building is its enigma, is it uses the enigmatic sign. You also see in the developer's uh, way the developer describes it, he says it's 340 meters long, longer than the Eiffel Tower laid on its sign. And of course, <laughs> that becomes a raspberry of Moshe Safti thrown at the Eiffel Tower, that little building that didn't make it, ironically. Moshe Safdie, if you read him or listen to him on Google and Dezine, you see that he describes it as the public realm connecting up to the city like a Lego block, like his previous Lego scheme of 1966. And in his terms, it is a very connected building and a public building. He calls it the public realm from bottom to top. Um, Maybe. In any case, uh, like all uh, iconic buildings, it uh, has uh, you know, things that are recognizable, like surfboards. I think that's the, the, the familiar stereotypical uh, enigmatic signifier that everybody sees. Um, and it also is friendly uh, people pointing, a friendly person there pointing to the, uh, the person next to them raising their skirt and showing what pays for it all, the Faustian bargain of the casino. And you see the boat, you see the whale, and of course there's the airplane, I suppose. Anyway, it looms large, and it looms over the uh, bay uh, gardens, casting its shadow over everything, and the boats even. It can be seen from the airplane, the first thing you see, to gateway, from the boats, from the plane. And it points here to another great icon, and what I'll be talking about very briefly is the garden uh, bay, um, the gardens by the bay. You can see, if you look closely, they are started by Chris Wilkinson's two domes, the flower dome and the cloud forest dome. The first thing to say about the enigmatic signifiers is, that, of course, they're not domes at all. These are uh, arch structures, parab parabolic arches, and they hang everything in tensions, and domes aren't tensions. But a typical icon, always, with a typical icon, you see the thing you know the best. And in this case, they, everybody sees dome when they see this. So, it's not a dome, but with an icon, it is a dome. Anyway, the domes actually, in the layout of the gardens, were, for the winning garden designer, the petals, the oblate petals of, a, um, of, of the symbol of, of Singapore. That is an orchid. So those are the two leaves of an orchid, and that explains the generic individualism of the pointed shape of this fan shape. Uh, it's an ellipse which is pointed, and it explains the rest of the garden, which I won't explain how it's an orchid, but you can see the stem coming from the 
the reservoir and, and um, generating into some uh, super trees. There's what the domes, uh, two domes look like. And their generic individual, individualism comes from uh, tweaking them so that the heat rises up to the right, tweaking them in all sorts of ecological ways and structural ways to, to give them an individual expression so they can be seen as uh, all sorts of animals uh, and turtles and shells and rakes and bras. Yes, asymmetrical as they are. Um, by the way, those are Madelon-Vriesendorf's uh, drawings. All of these are, and I should say, I work with her a lot to decode what are the stereotypical uh, ways that uh, these icons are communicating. On the inside of the flower dome, you see an incredible variety, flowers of all types, and, and mixed with uh, palms and other uh, trees. And then in the cloud forest, these extraordinary... Um, 34 foot, uh, sorry, 34 meter um, uh, waterfalls, which fall over your head, just missing you as you walk up, or if you take an elevator, you get up quickly. And you see that all of this is an artifice, that, that actually it's a concrete uh, structure that Chris Wilkinson and others have designed, and from it hang all these epiphytic plants and growing uh, trees and jungle trees and orchids. Uh, an incredible wealthy uh, mixture of jungle plants that Dr. Kia Tan has overseen and the Botanic Gardens has overseen. And you walk through the gardens, the five themed gardens, the Chinese garden, the Indian garden, so forth, and you see this amazing, almost surreal mixture of traditional garden rockeries which you know, often signify the body, our animals, or uh, tigers, or lions, or foo dogs, or whomever. And here they're orchestrating to each other, and then there's this amazing surfboard going over their head. It's, you know, it is surreal what's happening under socialism. Well, I'll end with a quick look at the next step. If generic individualism is the international style of all the major cities of our time. If it's kind of like Beaux-Arts classism or international style modernism of the 20s. What is the next step? In small buildings, it's much easier to answer that. But if you're talking about bigness still, and that is where the cities still are going and the global economy, then in this city, you could say a half step forward is uh, Thomas Heatherwick, uh, who is an artist, designer, as well as an architect, has produced this uh, technical university building uh, as an icon. It's called the Dim Sum Building, Dim Sum Baskets, telescoped, uh, eight stories, uh, telescoped as they get bigger out, uh, broken up in all sorts of individual ways and slightly more personalized ways. If you look at the concrete, the, the strata, the handling of the formwork, it's taking it just that little bit further than uh, generic individual 
uh, individualism. This is almost going towards personalization. And it brings up, you know, the question that the prime minister said when he said we cannot afford the luxury of poetry. Well, that's the kind of thing that in his office Thomas Heatherwick is trying to get and he got an artist to work on the mass production of the concrete structure that holds the building up and she, Sarah Finelli, produced a thousand different panels using transformable uh, formwork you can see in the background there. And so the artist, uh, Thomas Heatherwick, and the artist, Sarah, worked on more personalization. When you see it, it's a little bit too stereotyped itself. It, you know, it's more randomized than it's uh, personal. And this, uh, although it's, it's very nice to have pink concrete, and it's nice to have these patterns changed by computer, it's still not communicating an overall message. In other words, we're talking about something that's still generic. So I come back to this drawing I made of the allegory in 1983. And my argument then, and it still is today, unless there's an exchange of an iconographic program, a symbolism, a view between the client and the architect, unless there's a belief in communicating something more than a stereotype. Uh, there won't be uh, a building, a great piece of architecture will not be born. And so I drew a face. You can see the face toward the symbolic architecture as a kind of fern or palm looking out. And the smiling mouth is what they're uh, watering there with their cans. And above is the idea, because basically what they're exchanging is the idea of the building. And it has to be a con act between two consenting adults. In other words, architecture is an act of love. And there's no shorter formula for making great architecture. It has to be the poetry we can now afford. Not only is it a luxury, if you've reached the first two stages, you've reached generic individuation, you can go the next stage and have a personalization. And I believe that is shown by the overall gardens of the South Bay. It's in a way the, um, you could say like New York City has its central park. Finally, Singapore has an incredible poetic um, creation, which is on a world and global level uh, something to take notice of, the best of its kind, on which a billion dollars was spent. So the Faustian bargain was spent to make poetry. And I would say the iconography, even down to the purple and green super trees, was based on the particular plants of uh, of Singapore. In other words, that purple and green are one of the mango uh, trees that grow here, purple and green. So this is a symbolic and meaningful uh, ornament and architecture and icon, and it seems to me it works. So the next step is there uh, to enjoy. Thank you very much.
Charles, we have time. Maybe I can ask you just a couple of questions uh, about a magnificent uh, lecture. Uh, one thing about Zaha Hadid, it's a great anecdote because the BBC subsequently apologised uh, for their blunder uh, in libelling her uh, about this building in uh, Qatar uh, that people allegedly died on where the construction hadn't even started. And it's true that it sounded as though she'd walked out of the studio uh, in a tremendous rage. Well, she was in a rage, not, un not surprisingly. The fact was that the interview was carried out in a radio car uh, somewhere in central London. As, as she later said, she didn't have to storm out of the studio. She just got out of the car. Um, can I ask you first whether um, on your trips to Singapore and particularly your, your most recent one, do you feel um, optimistic about the general direction of architecture if we take it that what you see here um, are kind of classic examples, if classic is the right word to use, of generic individualism? Is Singapore the acme? Is it, is it the guide? Well, it's definitely... Um the center of it more than any other city in the world. It has that social contract, which the other cities don't have. But it, it, as a style, it is epitomized by Singapore, Hong Kong. Every major global city is, has gone to generic individualism. What I'm arguing is that it has, if you've gone that far, the next step, the poetry is the hard step, but I believe it's possible, and I believe you know, there are examples. And I, listening to uh, Dr. Kurt this morning, I can see the Singapore anxiety, which he was talking about, uh, perfectionitis, he called it, would make the Singapore people want to go the next step. So yes, a little paranoia is a good thing. What is the downside of individu individual, uh, generic individualism in the sense that many people try to design icons, or at least clients demand icons of their architects, but the proportion uh, which could be true icons of the sort you illustrated earlier uh, can surely uh, be only a small percentage. So are, are we doomed to have kind of sub-generic individualism as a standard type? I think that's the great danger, and I accept the argument that 95% uh, of the uh, so-called iconic buildings are really bad. My argument is that if we're not going to stop producing them, which we're not, I mean, we're, it's, we have more and more icons every year, we better get better at it. And there's no reason with more criticism from within the profession that we can't do a much better job. So I think, yes, most 95% are failures, but we could up the success rate easily. Charles Jenks, thank you very much indeed.